Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. We hear a lot about the swamp, the Washington DC swamp, the political swamp that is supposedly corrupting life in America or around the world. But there's another swamp, uh, I think a more genuine one, the financial swamp, the international financial system that is corrupting our political, economic and cultural life. Uh, Tom Burgess is a very distinguished, award-winning Financial Times investigative journalist and the author of an incredibly new book, I would say important, but this is a really, really important new book, I think, about the way in which the world really works. Uh, Burgess reveals the truth of the world uh, in, in, a, in, in the great tradition of investigative journalism. His new book is Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World. Tom, I gave you a good introduction. Uh, what is kleptopia? How is it ruling the world? Well, that's terrific. Thank you very much and a pleasure to join you. Um, Kleptopia is the global alliance of kleptocrats, those who rule through corruption. And I argue in the book that gradually, without us paying as much attention as we should have been, corruption has become the dominant means of power today. If you look from Budapest to Beijing, you'll struggle to find a leader that isn't a kleptocrat. If you look all points south of there, you'll struggle too. And increasingly, you'll see that the Western democracies, the rule of law states, are becoming weaponized parts of these kleptocracies because that is where you can stash your loot and that's where you can have the protection of the rule of law and it's where you can persecute your enemies using um, the sword of justice as your weapon. The achievement of kleptober is not only are you revealing this in incredibly important fact or at least what you would present as a fact or a series of facts about the world. But it's the way you tell the story in Kleptopia. It's a really compelling narrative. So this is not, um, this is not dull nonfiction. This is nonfiction at its most creative. Uh, Tom, how did you find the characters who drove your narrative? And why did you choose this narrative nonfiction form to tell your story? Well, my first book was called The Looting Machine, and that was the result of my years as a correspondent, a foreign correspondent in Africa, covering a lot of um, corruption to do with oil and mining and, and the, the violence and warfare that that leads to. And I wrote that book, and um, one night in London, uh, we did an event about corruption at a war correspondence club. And towards the end, someone put his hand up at the back, a uh, chap in, in glasses, balding, in his 50s and he just said um uh, my name is nigel and uh, i used to work for a swiss bank and i can say that actually yes there's a hell of a lot of corruption that goes on through there my editor was in the audience we caught each other's eyes our eyes bulged yeah. and anyway as soon as it was over we tracked down nigel to the bar 
And over several lunches that followed, uh, Nigel Wilkins started to explain that not only had he worked for a Swiss bank, he'd worked for its London office around the corner from the Bank of England. And that he'd started to grow suspicious so much so that he had gone around photocopying documents off the desks after all the bankers had gone out to the champagne bars in the city. Not only had he photocopied them, he'd started to take them home and keep them in red boxes in his flat in Kensington. So eventually I said to Nigel, well, Nigel, can you give me those boxes? And eventually Nigel said, mm, yeah, okay. So um, that was five years back. Nigel tried his whole life to expose financial wrongdoing. And for that, he was punished by the city of London, by the financial system. He was fired from the British financial regulator. And he was essentially exiled from the world of money. Um, and he's, he's no longer with us, I should say, as far as anyone understands, for, through, due to natural causes. Um, and, but he was reduced to ignominy professionally for trying to break the code of secrecy around money. So Nigel's our hero. And the yeah. threads from what he told me lead off in all sorts of other directions to oligarchs, to Central Africa, to crooks who work with Trump and so on. It's a true web. And you bring, uh, unfortunately, I, I guess, you bring Nigel back to life in a very compelling way. He comes across as a remarkably uh, brilliant and perhaps a tragic figure. Uh, the book reads like a kind of Tarantino movie. You have Mr. Billy and the thief and all these other characters and yet in contrast with Tarantino this is not hyper reality this is not absurdist fiction this is true so these people really do exist do they all imagine they're in a Tarantino movie <laughs> yeah it's all true every word uh, despite what the the very expensive lawyers uh, well they're very expensive lawyers would rather this truth wasn't out but um, I, I think it's a fascinating question and how these guys imagine themselves, how these mega rich oligarchs um, deep in murky and violent worlds think of themselves. And that's another reason to write the story like this. You know, a lot of books about dirty money and corruption fall into the trap that's set by the corrupt, which is bewildering complexity. You know, that was a, a problem with some of the way the Panama Papers were written about was that they did it. The writing was done on the terms of the kleptocrats in terms of front companies and British Virgin Islands, this and that and the other. And it's bewildering deliberately. So I've tried to do it through, through the people. And you get, yeah, these, these extraordinary oligarchs. How do they square with themselves? Their astounding wealth that's come from being in favour of um, maniac violent dictators. I think I've been a little too complimentary to the kleptocrats because I can't imagine any of them have seen Tarantino's Reservoir Dogs or Pulp Fiction. <laughs> I mean, what do they do with their money? Buy hookers and take a lot of drugs and buy huge mansions? Yep, they do all those things. Um, but that, again, I think sometimes is a distraction. I mean, it's great fun that uh, these guys are Damien Hirst collectors and uh, uh, are caught, caught, caught on, on yachts with um, full of uh, imported young women. Um, but what they really buy, what they really want more than anything else, and which you can buy tragically if you have enough money is legitimacy mm. and that aura of being a real serious influential person when actually you were just the guy who knew the guy who was giving out the contracts to the mines when the soviet empire's riches were, were, were given out and that's where it becomes poisonous for the democracies because buying legitimacy means 
hiring the voices of legitimacy in the West. So you get Tony Blair working for the Kazakh dictator. You get all manner of um, former uh, senior US administration officials working for all manner of gangster dictators um, in, in Central Africa and, 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 and elsewhere. And it's that quest to buy legitimacy that transfers the horrors of the kleptocracies into the rule of law states. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the laundering to use one of your favorite terms, the laundering of credibility, the laundering of legitimacy. You begin the book, Tom, with a quote with, in my mind, perhaps the greatest writer of the 19th century, Balzac. You said, uh, the secret of a great fortune with no apparent cause um, is, uh, uh, is that that has been forgotten because it was done uh, uh, improperly. Uh, that it was done uh, properly. Uh, let me repeat that. The, the, the secret of a great fortune with no apparent cause is a crime that has been forgotten because it was done properly. Um, so you have observed that the early 21st century is dominated by this globalized network of kleptocrats. Balzac, of course, was doing your work in the 19th century, revealing the corruption of a French aristocracy, financial aristocracy. How has everything changed? I mean, is this a new story or is it like prostitution, the oldest story in the book? Um, I'm delighted to be, have my work compared to Valzac. And I think, the, I think the critical difference, there are two. One, the main one is globalization. And the second one is um, your big theme. Um, the 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 internet age and um until even relatively kleptocrats could be and were regarded as sort of vaguely comic figures confined to very difficult countries that we looked on with some mixture of pity and um humor um, these are the sort of cold war tin pot dictators in africa yeah i mean and, and sasha baron cohen uh uh, right, the parodies that he he was so good at. Right, and they were easily parodied the Mobutus and the and uh, and the uh, and the Marcoses and the rest of them. But like everything else, they have globalized. So one of the things I've really dug into in the book and that takes me to the Kazakh steppe and the eastern and southern Congo and to Zimbabwe is that these kleptocrats have not just aligned in their goal in the privatization of power and grand looting, but have actually literally been knitted together in these networks so for instance robert mugabe's re-election in 2008 um one of the most brutal and saddening elections in recent african history or recent history anywhere that is bankrolled um with the help of uh some london-based investors who then cash out um by selling to three central asian oligarchs who in turn have business dealings with some real estate guys in New York who are applying money into Donald Trump. So it's mm. not just a case that these guys agree that the purpose of the power is to enrich yourself at the expense of the Commonwealth. It's that they are actually involved in the same networks of secretive business dealings by, the mutually by which they mutually entrench their, their power. And the, the second point, it's just a, a quick one. I think you're much better to discuss it, better qualified to discuss it than I am. But the, the for the money launderer, 
the Facebook age is the perfect time to operate mm. because we are what we say we are in, as you, as you've pointed out in this kind of culture of narcissism. And that's what the money launderer does. The money launderer um, takes uh, one version of, of events, the thing that actually happens, uh, rounds it through um, a system for destabilizing the truth. In the case of the launderer, the, um, the financial secrecy system in the case of, anyone on Facebook, social media, and comes out with a, a tailored version, an altered version of that of the, of the other side. So it, it so happens that uh, communications technology and money laundering have dovetailed in this, mm. in this way that's, um, that suits the launderers absolutely perfectly. I mean, we've got the term fake news. I guess it would be wrong to call dirty money fake money, but money has taken on all sorts of metaphysical qualities again it, it brings to mind another great 19th century fiction or non-fiction writer Marx and his treatment of money and capital as the the, the metaphysical truth um, is dirty money fake money uh, or, or how, how do we define it particularly in the context of the information age again corrupted by fake news I'd say it's subverted money. So I, I, I kept coming back to, it's almost a throwaway line in Dawkins in The Selfish Gene. He talks about money in an evolutionary sense as being um, tokens of delayed reciprocal altruism. So it's the way in which um, I can um, sell the crops that I've grown for the haircut that you're going to give me. And mm. it's just this, this means of exchange, these to tokens of exchange. But he talks about it in this very simplistic and I think quite attractive way of just being tokens by which we can give our altruism to strangers. And that's how we can have an ex a fairly a relatively equitable exchange of goods and services. Now, what dirty money does, whether that's dirty money from organized crime, dirty money used by um, intelligence agencies, dirty money laundered by kleptocrats and the corrupt, is it subverts that, that principle. So it takes money that is ripped from the Commonwealth by corruption or crime or whatever it may be, by, uh, in a transaction underwritten not by consent, but by violence, but by the violence of the kleptocrat who will shoot up and torture the, the, the striking workers I met in Kazakhstan, or will beat to death the Zimbabwean um, opposition voters. Money that is extracted in this way from the Commonwealth and then transformed through money laundering into money that looks into money looks identical to these tokens of altruism through which our society works. Mm. So it's money that's subverted. Yeah. Fake money in the, if, if you agree with me that this is what money is, then, then dirty money is fake money, but it's something worse. It's, it's, it's like um, poisoned money. In the, in the, in, I think I use the comparison in the book of, you know, all that horse meat we found in our lasagna or all the dodgy mortgages we found in um, those, those um, financial instruments that blew up the world. It's, mm -hmm. um, it's a poison within the, within the system. Tom, a few months ago, we had Don Tapscott on the show, who's probably the world's leading authority and evangelist on blockchain technology. If Don was listening to this conversation, which I hope he is, he would say, well, the, the fix to all this is, is blockchain, is uh, the kind of radical transparency that peer-to-peer uh, -peer, uh, uh, financial currency 
uh, offers. Is, blo is blockchain the fix to this or would it just deepen the hole? I'd say to deepen the hole. Um, without being an expert on, the, on, the, on blockchain technology, um, my understanding of it is that you could still, you could still combine it with the front company system relatively easily. Um, it's, it's, it's financial secrecy is made to look bewilderingly complex, but it's actually perfectly simple. It's just a system that allows people to operate in markets in disguise. So there's, I'd say there's a much simpler way of, of, of combating it, which is just to remove the front company system. So remove the fiction of the corporate person from transactions. And there's a way, there was a big um, corruption summit. One of the last things David Cameron did in London was to hold a corruption summit. Mm. And for all, for all his other faults, that was, a, that was a decent idea and it went pretty well. Um, and one of the ideas that I and others were, were putting forth around that time was strict liability on corruption. So the way if, if you fail to pay your taxes or if you drive at 130 kilometers an hour, that's a crime regardless of the circumstances. So what if we had a system whereby um, if I did business with an anonymous company, uh, Keen Incorporated, that was, that was based in the British Virgin Islands and whose ownerships were secret. I can do that. But if it's subsequently so shown that that company was criminal, had corrupt or criminal money going through it, I would be treated as if I had known. So you take the risk mm. on yourself of dealing with financial, financial anonymity. You know, the, come back to, 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 to Facebook again, um, and the, 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 the surveillance age that we're in, we talk, you and others talk um, often about surveillance culture and the erosion of privacy. And that's absolutely vital and terrifying and damaging to our society. But the other side of that is the hoarding of secrecy. So your Putin's, your Nazarbayev's, your Mohammed bin Salman's, often in quite agricultural ways, hoard secrecy, especially mm. financial secrecy. They and pay hoard for it. If you have money, money obviously is power and you can pay for it. I mean, the problem with the age of surveillance capitalism it's it's the poor who were revealed the wealthy buy anonymity they buy anonymity but also the secrets of their money are kept secret so their money can move through the world with vastly greater privacy than you and i enjoy as we move physically through the world so we want to remove our as you say we want to remove the fiction but what happens if we have again quote unquote fictional political leaders or at least political leaders who are rooted in uh, uh, a certain kind of fictional television world. Your, your first book was about um, dirty money in Africa. And this book is a much more troubling one in the sense that it's not just about the Mugabe's or even the Putin's of the world. Donald Trump appears in your book, not just as a an entertaining character, but as a central, if not the central figure, uh, he's both a metaphor for our age of kleptopia, uh, but also a powerful figure in this world. What would you say about Trump that is undeniable, that he couldn't deny himself? <laughs> well, I'm sure, he'd, I'm sure he would deny it, but whether he could, I, I'm not sure. What is undeniable about Donald Trump that I put forward in the book is that towards the end of the last century, 
he was a failed businessman who was desperate to look like a massive success. Banks were stopping lending to him. Everything he touched went bust. And he was rescued by two things. One was the advent of reality television, fake reality on television, fictional, where he could fictional, play this fictional television, right? He fictional played, television dressed up as fact. And he could play this kind of ersatz billionaire, which is what right. he desperately wanted to be. And at exactly the same moment, something else was happening. The 1990s were the great decade, the decade of pillaging. The, the, the entire wealth of the Soviet empire was taken by private interests. Much of the wealth of a lot of Cold War client states that went through huge upheaval was similarly captured. And there was a huge vogue of privatization all around the world. Um, the beginning of the, the sort of that real neoliberal phase. The decade that followed, the first decade of this century, was the stashing decade, where the important thing for the people who have captured that power is, as we've been saying, to get it somewhere stay safe and to use it to buy legitimacy. Because then, um, in, in the Balzac sense, you have really then transformed yourself into a Rockefeller or whatever it might be. So that, that huge tsunami of money seeking out the places where it can hide and then transform into legitimate form washes up in the West just when Trump is looking to monetize his new uh, persona, businessman persona from The Apprentice with a new business approach, which is to rent out his name. So he doesn't build buildings anymore. He says, you, can, you pay me for my terrible phrase, personal brand, and you pay me a cut of your building that you build, um, and you can stick my name on it, and I'll front it, and I'll promote it. Now, the, the main early buildings are the Trump Panama, the Trump Soho, and the Trump Toronto. Why I show in my book is that all of those buildings are conduits for secret money that's come from uh, usually the former Soviet Union, but also elsewhere. Um, money that has come from very questionable places have been obtained in questionable ways um, by people operating deep inside the most powerful kleptocracies. And tr one of Trump's, um, one of the sort of finance people who worked on those deals described Trump's approach to me as willful obliviousness. So you use the secrecy that's perfectly legal and permitted in real estate in America, the biggest market in the world, to hoover up this money. You hire, up, you hire out your name and take a cut of it. He is still getting a cut of that money. It's in his financial disclosures. It's still coming in. And then, by a very strange confluence of circumstances, he becomes the United States president. <laughs> and the, the, there even, are all... even, even you couldn't have made that one up, right? <laughs> no. Even, no, no, Balzac, no. Even Balzac couldn't make that up. No, it would have been dismissed as completely implausible. And there are all manner of consequences that we can discuss. But I'd say the most urgent one is that we have to understand this election in less than two months, this pivotal election, in kleptocratic terms. You know, I, when I was living in Nigeria, a marvellous place full of extraordinary people, but utterly corrupted and devoid of institutions that work. Politics is about capturing some high office, looting for yourself and your people as much as you can, and then above all, preserving high office. Why? Not just to carry on looting, crucially, to maintain immunity from prosecution. 
you go and cover and I've covered so many elections in especially African countries, but also elsewhere where everybody knows in every bar, they talk about the elections the way um, in New York, they might talk about polls. They talk about elections in terms of people needing to avoid prosecution once their enemies get control of the, 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 the ministry of justice. Now I'd say it's pretty reasonable to think that Trump or certainly those people around him, those who aren't already in jail, that is, for corruption in one form or another, they can see that a, there's a perfectly plausible, if not likely scenario, that either his former business dealings or his, the business dealings while he's been in office would be subject of criminal investigation um, if he loses his election. So it's not just a case of vanity or um, lust for power or whatever else drive Trump personally. These things, if you see them through the kleptocratic terms, become um, much, much higher stakes. And if you can't win that election, you have to discredit the election. So there's no winner. I appreciate it's very hard to do in the very robust American system, but it's what he appears to be doing. And if you understand him as a kleptocrat, that's why it makes sense, I think. We had someone on the show a couple of months ago who's written a book about Mar-a-Lago. I think if, if Balzac was around in the 21st century, that's where his novel would begin or end. Uh, you end, uh, Tom, with uh, Nigel, your uh, unfortunately departed hero in the, in the book being told about one kind of corruption. Or I said, it's just normal business, Nigel. How do yeah. we make this not normal business? Obviously, we want to vote Trump out of office. That's given. What can ordinary people do? Can they stop buying stocks and shares of, of companies which are fronts for this? Do we need more ethical uh, uh, vehicles for institution? Do we need new political parties who address this stuff head on? Um, it's all fascinating stuff. I would say that um, boycotting financial secrecy is a good place to start. Don't deal with anyone who's just a company. Only deal with people. And that, that can be... An, an, it's fast. Once you start to look for financial secrecy, you see it everywhere. And um, if, you, if, we, if we can try in, in uh, large transactions and small to deal with human beings rather than ciphers from the financial secrecy system, um, I think that will help us. But I also think that, um, as you've said, uh, the, the idea that a sort of um, democratized, as it were, media can stand up to the forces of propaganda, falsity, secrecy, and violence that come out of the kleptocracies is hopeless. So a well-funded, well-supported, widely read mainstream media that can, that can go to these terribly dangerous places and look for the most jealously guarded secrets there, that's vital. I'd also say that voting for politicians who are um, utterly transparent about their own sources of funding and will call out their own political parties in London, in the US, wherever it may be, for conflict of interest is vital. I don't think we need to, that, that there are new techniques we need to reinvent. We need courageous prosecutors. We need a vibrant civil service, a free press. I'd also say that 10 years ago, there was no political will for action on climate change. And um, with really extraordinary speed, that has changed dramatically, notwithstanding current troubles. Um, and I think that as we start to realize that the spread of kleptocracy is a matter of life and death, 
and that people who are party to these secrets are dying and they're not just dying in Congo, they're dying in the US, they're dying in Europe. Navalny, poisoned in Russia, what has he really been doing? He's been exposing corruption. Um, once we start mm. to realize this and we start to realize this, that, that, that our brothers and sisters and sons and daughters are the potential victims of this, I think we might see that energy and that understanding start to grow. And I think we need to, everyone read your new book, Kleptopia, How Dirty Money is Conquering the World by Tom Burgess, a very brave and important new book. Uh, perhaps the greatest threat of all in the early 21st century is kleptopia and not some warmed up version of fascism. Uh, Tom, as I said, people need to read your book. What else should people be reading? You're stuck in London during this lockdown this weird year of 2020 uh any other suggestions on important books either financial or otherwise to, to read i mentioned balzac should people be rereading him um people should always reread balzac i'd say the other one i'd throw in is gogol is dead souls mm. ah going, yes yeah and going back to this i mean there's um there's a line or two of it in the book actually one of the characters in the book happens upon it at a crucial moment um i'm gonna rattle off a few if i may um, Absolutely. Uh, Gogol's Dead Souls, taking us back to a time when a large minority of the population were literally owned by a tiny uh, group at the top, a tiny decadent group at the top, and the uh, horrendous distortions of the human character that, that follow. Um, coming a little bit more recently, uh, there's um, an obscure uh, book of legal... Um, theory that i mentioned in the book it's by ernest frankel and it's called the dual state frankel was a jewish lawyer in nazi germany who stayed much longer than it was safe to do before he fled at the last minute when he found out the gestapo were coming from him and what he did was he did um a study of german courts uh in uh, under nazism and he established this thing called the dual state where on the one hand you have functioning courts where you can go and you can get a decision and that allowed capitalism to keep working. And on the other hand, that's what he called the normative state. Then you have the prerogative state in the background, which is um, arbitrary and violent and can add at any moment overrule the normative state. And this book, I think, gives us an extraordinary understanding of where we are today, of lawless and rule of law systems um, locking together. Then I'd say a couple more. Um, the Trouble with Nigeria, written in the 70s by Chinua Achebe, the great Nigerian writer, which basically says there's nothing wrong with Nigeria. There's nothing really wrong with anywhere else. There's nothing wrong with Nigerians, certainly. What happens is when institutions break down, um, that, that is all that stands between us and complete societal collapse and nowhere is immune to it. And it's done with Achebe's beautiful style. Um, I've just finished Three Women by Leo today uh, by 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 um by today which is a wonderful thing um on a completely different topic but again about how power uh, works today lisa today of course and um lastly just out putin's people by my old colleague catherine belton which is the definitive account of the world of dirty money around putin himself um that that should keep you going for a little while yeah and i'm gonna if catherine's watching catherine i'm gonna get you on my show with or without uh, Tom's help. Thank you, Tom. Thank you very much indeed. 
You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.